Welcome to Matters of Fact. I'm Christian Esguera. Today in the program, we're going to talk about the Ombudsman's uh, dismissal of this complaint against members of the Manila Police who kept 12 prisoners in squalid conditions. Now, this was discovered in 2017. They were kept in a very small space hidden behind a bookshelf. What many thought was an open and shut case turned out to have more complications, at least as far as the Ombudsman was concerned. First, the news, the Office of the Ombudsman, as mentioned, has dismissed criminal administrative uh, complaints against Manila police officers for detaining suspects in a secret cell with no ventilation. The Human Rights Commission filed those complaints after it found 12 people camped in what it described as a dark, dingy, and fetid space behind a bookshelf during a raid of the Rahabago police station in Tondo back in April 2017. The CHR said the detainees were unlawfully arrested, not subjected to inquest proceedings, not fed, and were to be released only if they paid the police. The agency also noted that the jail sale had just one mil urinal forcing some detainees to relieve themselves in plastic bags. But in a 10-page decision, the ombudsman ruled there was no proof of bad faith on the part of the authorities when the detainees were placed in cramped quarters. The ombudsman added, the CHR failed to prove the suspects were held beyond the period allowed by law and that the cell lacked necessary facilities such as toilets. To talk more about this case that they filed against uh, the members of the Manila Police who are joined on the program by Commissioner Karen Dumpit of the Commission on Human Rights. Good morning, Commissioner, and thank you for joining us on the program again. Morning, Christian. Okay, bad news for the Commission on Human Rights. You heard or you read the decision coming from the Ombudsman. First, I'd like to get your reaction to this. The Ombudsman said there was no showing that the respondents did so in bad faith. What do you say to that? Well, actually, you know, um, uh, in our view, bad faith is not is immaterial. Because uh, when you take a look at the Anti-Torture Act, the fact that they were inside very cramped, uh, a very cramped space, dark, dingy, as uh, you recalled, um, uh, commingling of uh, both female and male um, uh, uh, persons in custody is already a violation. Uh, in fact, uh, when you take a look at it, when we first went there, we looked at the registry, these 12 people inside a one by five meter space that's very dark, no no access to, um, uh, to um, uh, you know, a bathroom facilities and all that. It's already a violation. They were not registered in the logbook as well. And that's okay. the first order of the day. When you arrest and bring them to a detention facility, you're supposed to register them. They weren't registered at okay. the time that we went. There's a tendency for people to think that the dismissal uh, by the Office of the Ombudsman had to do only with the fact that there was no showing of bad faith supposedly coming from those respondents, meaning members of the Manila Police. But there are other things that were attached to this issue. You mentioned, for example, that they were not uh, registered in the logbook in the first place. So give us a context, what you found out, why they were found in that particular camp space, hidden behind a bookshelf in the first place. Why were they there? Well, because they said that it was a uh, receiving area. I, I think that was the word that was used. It was a receiving area. It was a holding area. But then um, uh, we were also saying that several hours at the very least, if we were going to um, uh, uh, believe the police officers who were involved, that they 
they were part of um, uh, an operation that was undertaken and the arrests, uh, they arrived at the detention facility, I think, if I recall correctly, about 4.30 a.m. But uh, when we visited that place, uh, when the surprise visit was conducted, it was already, I think, 5 o'clock in the, in the afternoon, if not 6, no? if I recall correctly. And, um, and the first order is really when you bring a person to a detention facility after an arrest, you're supposed to log it. Um, uh, but when uh, but when we went there, in fact, when um, uh, Attorney Boyser, our then regional um, uh, director for NCR, um, knocked on the door or knocked on the bookcase um, and said, um, uh, "Please open this," uh, they they weren't they were hesitating. In fact, so if it was part of their facility, then they could have easily shown that to. Uh, the inspecting team. Okay, so, so so just to be clear, there was an effort on the part of the members of the Manila Police in that precinct to conceal that facility, quote unquote, that they had prisoners kept in that facility. Uh, the videos will not lie. We can all, always review the videos that we presented as evidence as well. Um, uh, if you remember, the media was part of. Uh, this not necessarily part of the team, but the media covered uh, the surprise visit. And this was based on a tip that we got from uh, the families, uh, one of the families, I suppose, of uh, those detained. Okay. Um, uh, when you got that tip coming from one of the members of uh, one family member of one of those being kept in that cramped space, what did that person tell you? Uh, what was the primary complaint? Why he or she went to the CHR? Um, uh, the description, if I recall correctly, is uh, parang it's like a cash cow. They would uh, they would keep them there, and then they would uh, extort money um, uh, to say, okay, we won't file the cases, and uh, and you will be let go. That's why one has a registry, then eh, that that supports the um, uh, this particular um, uh, opinion actually is supported by the fact na bakit wala doon? Why is it not found or the names of these 12 are not found in the registry? Um, uh, just just to recall as well that there was, uh, when we discovered this, no, just just to be able to um, uh, describe to you visually um, uh, uh, what we saw there. So we entered and then we saw this bookcase. We were able to uh, open it and uh, we saw it's a one by five meter uh, space. It was dark. Twelve people were there. So can you imagine already that it's very congested? The people who were there were mixed, female and male, and that's that's a violation already. In fact, the space alone will tell you. But um, uh, uh, one of the things that you cannot show on a video is the putrid smell that yeah. you um, uh, that you witness. No, Mabaho, okay. It's it's very um, uh, it's very uh, well. A foul odor, um, uh, urine, and excrement were already, you know, um, uh, that that was the scent. No? It's very dark, but when you see the uh, one by five space there, of course, there were camera lights already. Mm. And take a look at the end of that particular um, uh, space. It was dark as well. So if there was, and this is, I, I'm going into the, uh, the finding that uh, there was, 
an ingress yeah. egress in that area but if there were then why could not have the police directed us to the other side of it if they said that this bookcase is just here there's another um uh, there's another entry to it entry to that space then they could have directed us to that but there so, was so, so yeah. in short let's not fool ourselves there was an effort to conceal or to hide the uh, the prisoners or the people being detained there and what was the reason because again my question is there seems to be a tendency to focus on the facility which in itself was a problem yeah. uh merited the filing of a complaint at the very least right but what we what why were they being kept there was another big problem right yes um, uh, police were trying to extort money from them is that correct that's the report that we got that's the report that we got um, uh, and uh, and again, I, I, I as I've said, um, that that actually is supported by the fact that the names were not in the register. Okay. Uh, now let's let's talk about the evidence because according to the uh, ombudsman, based on the uh, decision, the burden of proof uh, was with the CHR number one to prove that there was another available confinement area which was better. So nasa inyo rin burden of proof. Well, you know, the, the proof that is needed here was presented. And we believe that this is enough for probable cause, which is the role of the ombudsman. Now, uh, what were the pieces of evidence that we uh, presented? Well, um, uh, in this case, we have the video. Um, we have the testimony, the unrehearsed testimony, the raw testimonies of, uh, of these 12 people who claimed that some of them were there for a week already. Um, uh, and then we also have uh, the uh, psychosocial reports of an expert group of doctors, psychologists, uh, that's the medical action group, that was also presented uh, as uh, part of the evidence that we uh, submitted to the ombudsman. So these were not considered uh, in that decision by the ombudsman? Well, we were hoping that uh, these pieces of evidence will be appreciated more by the ombudsman. And uh, owing to the fact, of course, that it wasn't only the testimony or the affidavits of these 12 people, we also had affidavits of our own investigators who witnessed, when we, who witnessed the uh, proceedings when they were conducting the uh, visit. So um, uh, owing to the fact that we are also a... Um, uh, what you call a another constitutional body, then uh, we were hoping and we were very hopeful that the ombudsman would have accorded great weight to our submission, including the including the statements of our investigators, our lawyers, and uh, the regional director as well. Okay. So, so what's the next hopeful. move? What's the next move by the CHR? Well, uh, motion for reconsideration, we've already filed it, um, uh, and uh, and we're still hopeful. We, you know, we're not without hope that this uh, case is, uh, is um, you know, a, a lost cause. It's not a lost cause. We have strong evi evidence. We believe that. Um, uh, and we will fight this till the end. Uh, there are there are other avenues coexisting uh, in exacting accountability, obtaining justice, and access to remedies for the victims. But uh, we are hopeful that uh, in this um, MR or motion for uh, reconsideration process, 
the uh, ombudsman will um, will appreciate better the evidence that uh, the pieces of evidence that were submitted and will accord great weight to it owing to the fact that we are also a constitutional body um, and again let me repeat that this is not without evidence there are um, uh, several pieces of evidence that were submitted it's not only testimonial we have uh, we have the um, uh, examinations of doctors who are experts and we also have the affidavits of those who conducted the surprise visit and the unrehearsed testimonies of uh, the victims who were so relieved when we when we when the door was opened when the bookcase was uh, was uh, moved uh, these um, uh, these uh, detainees were so relieved people were crying and saying thank you um, uh, and they were hopeful that they would be released actually there was no lighting just to be clear there was no lighting in that space is that hardly, correct hardly any right uh, lighting at the time i'm not sure i i think i recall one uh, light bulb but they said that they it was very dark okay. when you uh when you um uh well, when the bookcase was there, it was very dark. But okay. uh, just to say that, of course, cameras would need lighting to be able to illuminate what they're trying to yeah. take a picture of. Okay. But was there a separate area in that police precinct where other detainees were being kept or where those detained in that cramped space behind the bookshelf could have been detained? Well, yes, there was another space. That was the regular space. That was the uh, official detention cell. Uh, in that area so uh, it's there is no excuse really honestly because if it was part of their routine if it was just regular so why did they try to hide it why did they stop attorney Boyser from moving the bookcase if there was an uh, another entrance to it then why could they have not directed the team to go the other way okay now, let's talk about the implications of this uh, dismissal coming from the office of the Ombudsman. Of course, you understand that the CHR is trying to uh, perform your mandate. For example, abuses against anyone, not just detainees. It just so happened that uh, this particular case concerned detainees. And somehow, how do you respond to those who are saying that, aren't you being, um, uh, don't you understand, for instance, that we are in the Philippines and we don't have the perfect uh, facilities as far as uh, detaining uh, people are concerned that perhaps that was just the best quote-unquote that that police prison could have come up with well you know we still have to follow certain standards and those standards uh, is not only confined to a condition of or the infrastructure let's say of a detention facility those standards include rules of procedures which were not followed here those standards also call for transparency in uh, in uh, their operations as well. And uh, let me just uh, note here that we do have visitorial powers over all places of detention, and this is constitutionally enshrined. So there has to be respect for that. They should have been transparent with us. They should have been forthcoming. So these are the things that uh, we must uh, take a look at. There are human rights standards uh, for uh, what we call the minimum uh, standards for the treatment of uh, uh, persons in custody or persons deprived of liberty. And these were not followed, plain and simple. And uh, one of the standards, well, the standards is also enshrined in our constitution. 
there is absolute absolute proscription uh, it's absolutely prohibited to inflict torture cruel inhuman degrading treatment upon anybody uh, uh, person deprived of liberty and there is an absolute prohibition against uh, secret detention places okay now with this decision by the ombudsman especially this particular part of the decision quite interesting that there was no showing of bad faith as far as the respondents are concerned and number two that you supposedly failed to show that there was another available confinement uh, area which was better. The implications of these uh, portions of that statement when it comes to other police precincts or other police officers who might have been doing the same thing as well. Well, of course, the implication there is that it, it really is a setback. It's a setback in our um, uh, advocacy, in our um, uh, uh, campaign to ensure that we eliminate illegal, um, uh, you know, inhumane practices in detention facilities. That is indeed a setback. It also contributes to impunity in the country. If we are not going to be able to correct this, if we're not uh, able to exact accountability for uh, these transgressions that have happened, no, um, uh, and. Um, well, suffice it to say that, you know, um, we're, we're really very disappointed, actually. We cannot, uh, you know, we cannot express that. Um, we have no words to say when it comes to that. We're extremely disappointed, but again, we are not without hope that this will uh, pan out and this will result in a better appreciation of the evidences that were presented in uh, and submitted with the ombudsman and the process is not yet uh, final anyway uh, yeah, we still yeah. have that motion for reconsideration okay now if that mr that motion for reconsideration is junked as well uh, what are the other options for the chr till the end to the extent of uh the justice system we will go to the end of it so the courts um uh, we will uh, we will question that and uh we will see how it goes Okay, Commissioner Karen Dumpit, thank you for joining us this morning. Thank you very much, Christian, for the opportunity. Good, good morning. The Philippine government will temporarily ban the entry of all travelers from India, which is now struggling to contain a spike in COVID-19 cases. The travel ban will take effect on April 29 until May 14. But Palace spokesman Hari Roque says passengers already in transit from India and those with recent travel history to that country will be exempted. However, they are required to undergo quarantine for 14 days at a facility even if they previously tested negative for COVID-19. Roque says the transport department should make sure airlines will not allow passengers covered by the travel ban to board flights to the country except if they are part of the Philippine government's repatriation efforts. Yung mga restrictions po para sa mga iba pang biyahero na galing sa mga ibang bansa na meron na rin pong um, variant na galing po sa India ay pwede pong ma-impose uh, ng uh, Office of the President upon the joint recommendation po ng Department of Health at ng Department of Foreign Affairs. The Philippine lawmakers announced their plans to distribute free samples of the antiparasitic drug ivermectin as treatment for COVID-19. Deputy Speaker Rodante Marcoleta and Anak Kalasugan Partilist Representative Mike Defensor will hold an event in Quezon City on Thursday along with doctors who will prescribe the controversial drug. 
Justice Secretary Milar de Guevara says the two lawmakers are presumed to know what acts are prohibited and allowed under the rules of the Food and Drug Administration. Ivermectin is not yet registered for human treatment in the Philippines. But the FDA earlier granted special permits to several hospitals to use ivermectin for their COVID-19 patients. Now, the country's COVID-19 treatments are in health under Secretary Leopoldo Vega says the healthcare utilization rate in Metro Manila has gone down over the past few weeks. But is, it, is that enough to relax restrictions next month? Under Secretary Vega joins us this morning. Good morning, sir. Good morning, Christian. Good morning to uh, all the uh, viewers out there. Okay, before we talk about the uh, the COVID quarantine restrictions that are expected to be announced today, I'd like to go to this other important topic first. Uh, there are two congressmen who are set to distribute free samples of ivermectin, an antiparasitic drug, uh, for treatment for COVID-19. This is a big issue lately, right? So, so a lot of people have been using that as prophylaxis as well, not just treatment for COVID-19. Any warning? Any piece of advice ahead of this? Is this something that the congressman should do? Well, uh, I think uh, primarily the ivermectin uh, has been given a compassionate use of from the FDA. And this is coursed through the hospitals. In other words, uh, they have to apply for a compassionate uh, use for ivermectin in terms of uh, giving out to uh, the patients that they would like to. And uh, I think there are already two hospitals right now who are given this compassionate use. Right now, uh, the FDA has been asking the different uh, suppliers of ivermectin to uh, apply to uh, the FDA for a CPR so that uh, they would properly be given the necessary permit in terms of uh, marketing this. And the other thing also, ivermectin is uh, uh, being uh, on a clinical trial. In other words, in, uh, in some hospitals, uh, ivermectin is already uh, being uh, uh, investigated and researches are made through, through, uh, through a clinical trials in some of these hospitals. Uh, I'm sure if uh, the, uh, the results would be very positive in terms of prophylaxis and even treatment, then uh, the uh, FDA will uh, announce that kind of uh, uh, pronouncement. Now, pending those findings after the clinical trials, are they are we supposed to take ivermectin as prophylaxis or treatment for COVID-19? Well, the FDA has, uh, has given us the um, uh, um, directive that uh, ivermectin is still an investigational and uh, really an experimental drug. In other words, it is not uh, fit for uh, any kind of human consumption, not unless the, uh, the drug supplier submits the CPR to FDA so it can be cleared and specified whether this is for human use or for animal use. And that's mm -hmm. the only way that the, uh, this can be marketed to the different uh, uh, constituents. Okay, and again, for the information of uh, the people, when you say compassionate use, this should be done in a hospital setting, right? With proper monitoring and uh, yeah. administration coming from the doctors, right? Right. Uh, it must come from an institution and the com compassionate use for ivermectin will be coursed through the institution from the FDA. Mm. So in this case, can two congressmen, are they supposed to distribute free samples? They, they must uh, relate this with the FDA uh, directive and they can ask actually uh, FDA to, uh, to look into the uh, supplies of uh, this uh, ivermectin and apply for a CPR because uh, it, this is the only way that uh, the FDA can actually give the permit 
to market this kind of uh, drugs. Without that, no one, even congressmen, can distribute free ivermectin uh, samples. Is that correct? Yeah, because uh, first, uh, we don't know if uh, this will be uh, beneficial or it can be harmful to uh, the constituents. So I, uh, and the, the, uh, the stand of the WHO, the stand of the FDA and the DOH is that uh, it has to pass through the FDA for permit and for regulation. Okay, and, and what do you make of this uh, intense pressure seemingly or lobby for ivermectin to be used as treatment or prophylaxis? Prophylaxis meaning something that could be used supposedly to prevent uh, you from contracting COVID-19, right? So para maiwasan daw, supposedly. But uh, what do you make of this, uh, this seeming uh, intense pressure, seemingly intense pressure on our regulators to, to allow ivermectin? Is there, so, is there something that we are not seeing here? Yeah, right, uh, because there are so many uh, anecdotal reports uh, wherein uh, patients have been cured or uh, they've taken ivermectin as prophylaxis and the, the, uh, they did not have the COVID-19 uh, uh, infection. Uh, but these are anecdotal reports. But there are now big randomized clinical trials uh, uh, in, 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 in all centers, in, in big centers uh, around the world, wherein uh, they try to find out if the uh, effectivity and safety of uh, ivermectin is there in the treatment and prophylaxis of uh, COVID-19. Not unless we see the final scientific data on the clinical randomized trials of ivermectin on uh, bigger centers can uh, we clearly uh, say that uh, it is uh, safe and effective or it can also be uh, harmful? So better to wait. Yeah, I, I think we have to wait for the scientific data coming from the uh, bigger clinical randomized trials abroad. Okay. Now let's go to this, uh, this, uh, this current COVID-19 restrictions in Metro Manila and nearby provinces. We're under an MACQ setting. And of course, we heard the position coming from the experts and even the DOH. Uh, based on the numbers, are we ready to shift to a less stringent COVID-19 pandemic restrictions in Metro Manila and nearby provinces, or are we not? Yeah, uh, you know, Christian, when we uh, the uh, wave started really in the first week of uh, uh, March, uh, most of the hospitals really were trying to... Uh, uh, admit uh, non-COVID patients already because you know that, that the trend at that time was a, a decreased trend in the, in the uh, COVID uh, infections. There was only about uh, 1,000 plus to 2,000 plus new cases. But apparently uh, the, the wave came in in, in, in March and uh, the hospitals really had to adjust and allocate and uh, even uh, 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 compress uh, uh, some of their uh, allocated beds uh, for non-COVID to COVID. And this took time. And in fact, uh, we have been giving the direction for most of the hospitals, especially the public and the private, to make sure that the bed allocation for COVID is there, uh, at least 30% for the private and then 50% for uh, government. And uh, to intensify also the number of uh, uh, ICU uh, beds that they have. And uh, lately, we have, we have gained the grounds on this in terms of making sure that the uh, ICU beds are there to cover the severe and moderate cases. From compared with last month and uh, this month, we have generated at least 150 new beds of ICU. In other words, uh, from uh, 781 last March, we are now 931 in terms of the number of ICUs that we have. We Where's this? Have... Where's this? In Metro Manila? Uh, 
this is Metro Manila. This is Metro okay. Manila. We're talking of the level three, uh, uh, level three and level two Metro Manila public and private hospitals, and we also were able to uh, improve the number of uh, isolation beds to 800 plus. So, in other words, what I'm saying is that we just gained grounds in terms of making sure that the capacity of the health system is there, and uh, de-escalating this would mean that it is very hard for us to preserve this ground. In other words, we have to continue and maintain uh, preserving the gains that we have right now because uh, we, we don't know uh, if we are able to suppress this virus. Because if you take a look at the uh, number of cases, there might be a decrease and even a plateauing, but we have to make sure that uh, we have to be ready for anything that will, uh, that will come. So in other words, at this point, uh, we are, we are uh, making sure that the health system capacity is there. So better to extend the MECQ or not? Yeah, I think it is better for us, as the mayors were saying, that uh, we, we need to uh, preserve our gains right now because the gains that we have came in later, about the, the, the fourth or, or the third and the fourth and the fifth week. So it's much better that uh, we, um, we have this kind of, uh, of uh, status right now uh, so we can actually preserve whatever uh, gains that we had uh, uh, late. Okay, now you mentioned gains, right? Interesting choice of word. But how about the establishment of a COVID-19 infrastructure that would be able to actually withstand whatever surge that might come in the future? Yeah, yeah, Christian, you know... Uh, when when can year, we achieve that? When can we yeah, achieve that? We can achieve that in, uh, in six months' time. Uh, no, no, in three months' time. Because uh, roughly uh, when we planned for it last November, uh, we knew that uh, there might be a second wave and uh, we planned for uh, the uh, field modular hospital and uh, the first field modular hospital that was constructed and operationalized was in a, a, a kidney center that's about uh, 27 beds uh, uh, for uh, intensive care and uh, moderate use and then uh, after that came uh, jose rodriguez that's another 44 beds for uh, as a field modular hospital and lately we had the 110 beds uh, coming from uh, QI, and uh, that's being operated by Jose Reyes. And we are still constructing, uh, through the DPWH, of course, the another 110 extension uh, facility in uh, Kidney Center, that's 110. And there's another um, 100 and, uh, 220 in uh, National Mental Hospital. That's a field hospital. So in other words, in, in, 45, in uh, 45 days or even uh, three, possibly three months, we will be able to achieve this number of beds to about uh, close to 500. We're going to inaugurate another, again another uh, 44 bed field modular hospital this Friday in Batangas, and okay. that's in Batangas Medical Center. So these are the. Uh, of course, I would like to mention also that uh, through the local government unit, uh, Mayor Isko Moreno took the initiative of uh, setting up uh, a hospital, a field modular hospital in front of Kirinu Grandstand. And that's, 100, uh, that's about 135 beds so okay. for moderate cases. So you expect to complete all this in 45 days. But if you look at the numbers that we're seeing now, the average, we're somewhere in the vicinity of 6,000 to 9,000 cases daily. So sobrang dami pa rin, no? And those facilities that you mentioned only form part of the uh, overall strategies by the overall strategy by the government. Right, right. So what about testing and tracing, for for instance? And what are we expected to do within those 45 days while those facilities, that infrastructure is being completed? 
Right. Naka-lockdown ba tayo lahat dyan or not necessarily? No, no, not necessarily, uh, Christian. But, 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 but you know, you have uh, low-lying fruits in here. You have hospitals, institutions, uh, facilities capable of handling uh, in, uh, severe and moderate and critical patients. All they have to do really, and this is what we've been trying to ramp up, is allocate more intensive care units in, in, their, in their hospitals. In other words, they can easily convert a room into a very specialized unit as an ICU. In other words, uh, they have the uh, they have the structure, they have the uh, the monitors, they have the equipment, they have the highly skilled personnel. In other words, these low-lying fruits out there, conversion of some of these rooms, isolation beds, or even wards into isolation facilities, really can help out the and ramp up the number of uh, ICU beds. And this is what we're saying that the 150 beds that uh, we were able to generate came mostly from these uh, hospitals that were able to transform a part of their rooms and isolation beds into specialized isolation units called ICUs. But do and, they have and, also uh, sufficient personnel to man or to staff those uh, additional facilities? Yes, because uh, all they have to do is really co contract the, non the non-COVID cases and reassign uh, some of their uh, healthcare workers to the uh, to this kind to the specialized units for uh, COVID. But of, of course, we need, they need to hire more. And uh, this is the reason why the Department of Health has been trying to put up about uh, 3,500 uh, plantilla positions, or not plantilla positions, but positions for uh, augmentation for the uh, healthcare workers. And uh, how many uh, have you recruited? Uh, we have recruited almost 2,000 plus. Uh, that's almost roughly about 65%. In other words, uh, we're, we're actually generating um, 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 more of this human resource to man and fill the, the hospitals that we have. And the second is we do we do a deployment coming from uh, regions that have low risk uh, for uh, COVID. And they have also given us uh, warm bodies being deployed in the different hospitals here in Metro Manila. Uh, that's uh, roughly about 170 of them uh, at present. So as of today, how long is the waiting time if you, let's say, get uh, COVID-19 and then you want to get a hospital bed? How long is the waiting time at the one uh, hospital command center? Uh, the waiting time, you mean the call time or the... Uh, yeah, I mean, the I mean you call yeah. the... Yeah, yeah, no, right. Not the yeah. response. When you call the, the, the one hospital command center, how soon can you get a bed? Oh, uh, it really depends on the... Uh, on the, uh, the in the triage of this kind of patients. If the patient actually is just uh, having a positive, is COVID positive, but is mild and uh, doesn't have any symptoms, uh, then uh, that can easily be uh, uh, coordinated to uh, to uh, isolation center by the one hospital command. And if the patient would need an intensive care uh, unit, uh, well, the, the patient has, has, will be sorted out whether he would want a private or a public uh, institution if a public institution, uh, there are a number of uh, ICU beds right now. Uh, I think uh, the, the critical uh, HCUR uh, disaggregated for the intensive care unit is now at 71%. And this is better off uh, than the last month since we were having almost uh, 78 to 80% at that time. So, so in other you, words, we, mm -hmm. we do have uh, a number of uh, uh, beds right now. So can you honestly tell the public that if someone uh, is suffering from severe or critical case of COVID-19, that when that uh, person or person's relatives call the one hospital command center, that patient can get an ICU bed? Of course. Right now, yes. We have about 71% HCU, 
HCUR for the ICU bed. So roughly, uh, they, they can be accommodated at this time. They don't have to wait long. Well, it really depends. Uh, in, in the choice of the patients, uh, the patients would somehow uh, choose uh, uh, a private institution or a level three or uh, or a level three of public institution. But if there's a, if given the chance, uh, it would be easier for us to coordinate if uh, we can uh, set this up okay. in a government retained institution. Okay, Health Undersecretary Leopoldo Vega, thank you for joining us this morning, sir. Salamat, Christian. Thank you. Now, health officials have said COVID-19 transmissions among family members under one roof are on the rise. Now, what steps should be taken in case this happens to you? Let's hear from uh, Dr. Anna Ong Lim. She's an infectious diseases expert and a member of the Philippine Health Department's technical advisory group. Good morning, doctor, and thank you for joining us again in the program. Good morning, Christian. Okay, let's, uh, I was thinking that this interview could serve as uh, purely educational or instructional especially those who are uh, somehow not familiar with what to do, given the fact that uh, cases involving household members are on the rise, uh, as mentioned uh, in, in our introduction. So first off, if you get uh, COVID-19, of course you have your family with you, you're staying under one roof. What are you supposed to do? What are the rest of the family supposed to do? Um, Christian, I think the first and most critical step is actually early isolation. So we typically have this mindset that uh, once we're sick, we want to observe further whether these symptoms will develop into anything significant. But uh, granted that uh, COVID-19 cases are so prevalent now, and um, if this is presenting as a fever, cough, cold illness, the likelihood is really that um, somebody would be having COVID is pretty high. Um, the most prudent step is really to isolate early. And then once you're isolated, figure out how you can get tested so that a diagnosis can be established right away. And the next steps for quarantine of your household members can also be implemented. Okay, now pending uh, testing for that person suspected to have COVID-19, what are the rest of the family supposed to do? So the family member should also already start thinking about quarantine. Uh, again, working on the assumption that um, the likelihood is pretty high. You know? um, the, the importance of this is part of our responsibility is to try to contain spread. So in as much as we want to provide care for our infected family member, we also need to make sure that we're no longer affecting others by continuing to go around. So the incentive really to get tested right away is so that we have a disposition for the entire household, not just for the person who's starting to have symptoms. Okay. And when is the best time to get tested? If you suspect that you are um, sick with COVID-19, let's say you yourself is that person uh, suspected of having COVID-19, or if you are a relative, staying under one roof when is the best time to get tested and uh, do you need to immediately go for an rt-pcr test okay so the the protocols are slightly different for those with symptoms and the close contacts the symptomatic individual will have a pretty high likelihood of turning positive because they already have symptoms and um preferably this should be an rt-pcr because the sensitivity is better but um, if in case it's not available and you already have symptoms, then the antigen, the rapid antigen test can also um, provide 
a fairly reliable result. Siguro yung caveat ng John Christian is uh, if the patient who is symptomatic opts for a rapid antigen test and the rapid antigen test is negative, this has to be re-verified. So a positive test is acceptable, a negative test has to be re-verified. Now for those who are quarantined because they don't have symptoms yet, you expect that their tests might be false negative if done too early. So you wait for five days and after that time that the um, source case in your household turns positive or becomes symptomatic, then you, be, you can be tested as well. So don't get uh, tested earlier than five days? Well, yes. After because, the... Yes, after the exposure because, um, well, after the onset of symptoms from your source case, no, because you might be doing it too early and you're just getting a false negative test. But let me add, Christian, it's very important, no? Regardless of the result of the contact, they still have to continue with their isolation for 14 days. Because yun nga, we don't know whether at what point you will be turning positive. So maraming nakakampante. They think that if they're negative, they're, they're home free. Hindi ano, kailangan pa rin mag-quarantine. And what are they supposed to wear uh, at home? Of course, I'm talking about face masks or shields. No, um, right. For example, talagang you suspect that a family member, pending the result of the, uh, let's say, RT-PCR test, but already showing symptoms. Are they supposed to wear face masks uh, at home? Kasi iba inisip, uh, we are stay, staying under one roof. Uh, we are resigned to the fact that we would all get infected. Ah, okay. May ganong mentality, well, di ba? Yeah, may ganong mindset, no? Pero ganito kasi, important pa rin mag-set um, ng boundaries, no? Kasi hindi naman natin sigurado that your previous interactions already resulted in an infection for the rest of the household. And of course, we're always very conscious of the fact that even as we say, the majority of cases will be mild or asymptomatic, you really can't tell. And, and we're also seeing reports of people who are in the younger age group, no comorbidities, and they still succumb to the illness. So anyway, the point is, the sick person needs to be separated out, has to have his own room and bathroom. The rest of the household, no, without symptoms, may interact with each other um, as usual. Um, but when they're in front of the person who's uh, symptomatic, that person, no, the they have to be in mask and, and preferably also face shields para to minimize the the transmission. Okay, but the reality on the ground is that uh, most of the households in the in the Philippines do not have that opportunity or setup or infrastructure to provide isolation spaces for a family member sick with COVID-19. Right. Right. So in those uh, situations, what are the family members supposed to do? Well, that will precisely be a setup for the LGU to transport the positive case to a PTMF. But if in case your LGU allows you to stay home, then your mindset should be, how do I convert my interactions to low-risk uh, transmission category? So that means you minimize the interactions. You keep your distance, preferably at least one meter apart. You need to be in a mask and shield when interacting with the other family mem members. And... Um, you keep your time of interaction to a minimum. So basically transforming your apat-dapat rules into the household setting. And, and uh, paying particular attention, I would add, to ventilation in your household because, uh, of course, the time of interaction will be difficult to manage. And because you're indoors, then you want to be able to make sure that you don't increase the viral load within that particular closed space. Okay, Dr. Anna Ong Lim, thank you very much for joining us this morning. Thank you.
and that's our program for sorry about it. <laughs> okay and that's our program for today i'm christian Esquera. you can listen to our interviews again on the anc matters of fact podcast available on apple spotify google and stitcher you can also get all the exclusive content on anc's youtube channel thank you for watching